back, so it was just a kiss. Was it, Noah? Was it just a kiss? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we watch a romantic comedy, typically featuring a love triangle, and tell you why the protagonist made the wrong decision and destroyed everybody's lives by picking poorly. I'm Jennifer. I'm Samantha. And I'm Sadie. And this week, we are talking about the 2018 movie Netflix flick, The Kissing Booth, which Sadie will now summarize for us. Ooh, guys. Okay. So, The Kissing Booth, as you probably already know, is the crown prince, the reigning royalty of bad Netflix rom-coms, wherein Joey King, playing Elle, and Jacob Elordi, playing Noah, are star-crossed lovers in high school with an insane height difference and a very toxic dynamic. Joey King is the best friend of Noah's younger brother, Lee. And one of their big best friend rules is that they can't date each other's family members, which doesn't really come into play for Lee because she only has like one super young brother. But it's a big deal for her because Noah is like her biggest crush, even though he's an asshole. And also to note, I've never had one of these lists but I guess they must be common because they're in literally every teen movie ever and they reference it constantly in the movie. They're like, oh, remember number 38? I'm like, I wouldn't be able to remember like three lists. So I don't know. There's not a whole bunch you really need to know because you can just, you just know. It's like peak Wattpad, bad boy meets cute good girl, and they fall in love despite his weird controlling behavior and penchant for fighting random people. He fights, I think, three people in this movie on screen, but he's very buff and he has a motorcycle, so it's okay. And in the end, Lee accepts that his best friend is in love with his terrible older brother. Joey and Noah get back together now that they're able to, I don't know, do whatever they do in public. I don't know what they talk about. But also, he got into Harvard for some reason. I don't know how that happened. So the movie ends with them saying goodbye to each other in the airport. And she tells him that he shouldn't look back at her when he boards because that's just too cheesy. But then she secretly wants him to, but he doesn't. And so the movie ends with her getting on his motorcycle because she got her motorcycle license, I guess, in like the three weeks between graduation and him leaving for Harvard. And she drives off and she's like, I don't know if we'll be together, but I'm glad I fucked Noah Flynn. And then that's the end of the movie. So we have Noah Flynn, the older brother, who is the main guy. And then we have Lee Flynn, who is the other guy in question. And then we have to talk about which one is the better choice when I think we all know the answer. But anyway, let's get into it. Let's see. We also have one other guy named like Tupples or something. What was that oh, character? Tup- Tup- Tupperware? <laughs> Tupperware. He of the curly hair and green eyes, who was quite handsome, but also was an ass grabber. But I still think she might have done better to get with him. (laughs) We can disqualify him immediately for the ass grabbing. Yeah, so I didn't touch on on him in in my synopsis, but yeah, (laughs) essentially he 
grabs her ass on the first day of school, which prompts Noah to fly into a fucking rage and beat the shit out of him. And so all three of them get in trouble when she literally had nothing to do with it. And so then later she's in detention, her, Noah, and Tupperware. (laughs) And Tupperware keeps like giving her notes throughout it. And he's like, can I have your number? And she's like, oh, but you got to put on my skirt first. And then the next thing, I don't know how he got the skirt. I don't know how it fits him, but it barely fit her. But he walks in wearing her super short skirt. And then she agrees to give him her number. But he stands her up because... Off screen, I guess Noah threatened Tupperware with his life. So um, (laughs) he decided it wasn't worth it. A pair of boobs wasn't worth it, as he said. Tupperware, we barely knew ye. (laughs) (laughs) Rest in peace. (laughs) Okay, so what are your overall thoughts? Samantha, you went through it. So you know when you go to a fast food place as a child and you get a soda cup and you go to the soda machine and you're like, you know what would taste good if I mixed every single soda at the soda machine together into one gross milky brown concoction (laughs) and then you do it and you taste it and it's terrible. I feel like that's this movie. It just took something from every teen movie that has ever existed, put it in a blender, pressed on on the blender for 30 seconds, and then just dumped out whatever was left. It was a truly (laughs) terrible experience for me. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, in the parlance of my second grade class back in 1992, mixing all of the drinks at the soda fountain like that, was really horribly known as a suicide, which I don't even know that any of us seven-year-olds knew what that word actually meant at the time. But mm, yeah, this movie, you know, we had a dead mom. We had Molly Ringwald. We had a little brother who was barely in the movie and never addressed. We had a an overprotective dad who only got like 30 seconds of screen time and two lines. We had a hot older brother. We had an opposite sex best friendship. We had some popular girls who, uh, what was their, I don't the know. The, ah! the mean girls, the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just the most stereotypical group of little rich mean girls. They didn't have to be in the movie at all. No, they, they literally they really didn't. Serve very little narrative purpose. And I was shocked by the amount of dance dance revolution in this movie, which was apparently <laughs> the main bonding activity of Joey King and her friend Lee, Ellen Lee. And like, I mean, y'all, like, were kids still, it, it, are there still Dance Dance Revolution machines in 2018 in LA? Is this a thing? I thought you were going to say that Dance Dance Revolution was the number one sponsor for this movie. <laughs> and I was going to lose my mind because it makes so much sense. Because the DDR makes such a big, like, plot, like, point in this movie. It's like the the foundation of, of everything. <laughs> Fuck the kissing booth. This movie is about DDR. For these characters, though, (laughs) is DDR like having a vintage record player in your home? Or does DDR still enjoy (laughs) popularity among people of Joey King's generation? That arcade was strangely populated by a lot of the popular 
or popular coded high schoolers in this movie. But nobody else played DDR except for the main character, the best friend, and then his girlfriend when she came along. Oh, yeah. I She was such a non-character. I don't even understand. They just threw her in there and she had like the most blank personality, but he was just like so into it. And they just acted like a married couple for the rest of the movie. Yeah. So much of the movie is underwritten. Yeah. It made me long for a movie like Pretty in Pink. I I said to my wife while I was watching this, like, (laughs) remember when teen movies had writing and weren't just slow motion shots of people walking into rooms and down hallways set to pop music? Like, there used to be actual words in, (laughs) in teen content instead of just like glamorized slow-mo montages of people flipping their hair or flexing their deltoids in a locker room. This movie had another enormous case of the problem Samantha called out when we, so I think this is the third teen focused movie we have watched for the purposes of this podcast so far. And one was pretty in pink as Samantha just said, The other was to all the boys I've loved before. P.S. I still love you. And when we were discussing that one, we talked about how people are just interested in the protagonist for no apparent reason. They just find her fascinating when all she does is stay in her room and bake. But in the universe of the kissing booth, all it is is that you look like a, a pretty but fairly normal cis teenage girl uh you know a a white girl in the united states in 2018 and you wear a slightly too short skirt to school one day and then the entire school is obsessed with you (laughs) yeah this was wild to me how much of this movie was like all of the extras, like all of the other high school students, just standing in stupefied silence as they watched Elle and Noah have conversations. Like, are these two people really so captivating (laughs) and remarkable that the whole school just like needs to stand there and watch them work out their relationship? I, what I found so fascinating about this movie is twofold. One The way that this movie is framed, especially at the beginning, sets it up like Lee is going to have this reveal where he actually is in love with Joey. And that's like going to be the whole thing. Because even the poster, it's like Joey King standing in the middle and then the two brothers behind her, like both looking at her, I'm pretty sure. And it's just like so wild and off kilter that it's not like really addressed later. And I thought it was kind of refreshing that they didn't set it up that way, but they did at the beginning because that's what it feels like it's going to be. And then it's just like, it feels like something's missing when it never, it never addresses that. And then the second thing is that Noah's character is written so weirdly and is also underwritten. And then where it is written, it's bad. And everyone doesn't like him. Like no one enjoys his company, not even his own brother. And there's this really climactic scene where Lee um, finds out that Noah and Joey are having an affair and thinks (laughs) that Noah hit her. (laughs) (laughs) An extramarital affair. 
<laughs> an extra friend affair. Rule nine. An extra friend. And if your best friend genuinely instantly thought that his brother had hit you, like he was beyond a doubt convinced that he had attacked you, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe I'm not gonna maybe I'm not gonna get with this brother. Maybe that's just not gonna happen. And no one at the end really like no one doesn't really change as a person. And so presumably all the people who don't like Noah and or do not condone their relationship, i.e. Lee and also Joey King's dad, it's never addressed. So they continue to dislike him. And it's it's so weird. I just had to talk about it first off. Oh, I'm really glad you did. I thought that that was so strange that quickness to violence was the most defining character trait we were given for the character of Noah Flynn in this movie. Yeah. Even in the, it starts with a little flashback because apparently that's the foundation of Elle and Lee's best friendship is that they were born in the same hospital on the same day to best friends to mothers who were best friends then one of the mothers is quickly eliminated and then molly ringwald shows up to make empathetic expressions sometimes but yeah when when the character of noah is introduced as a child the first thing said about him is that he was in a fight he won Uh, again he's in a fight he won and i mean damn i don't know what the, the rules are like in like high schools for super, super rich, you know, kids in LA. But I mean, there were consequences in like 2003 in my Tennessee high school when you physically beat someone, even if you were the captain of the football team. Yeah, I, yeah he it like, I think, Sadie, you called it out before. We saw him in at least three brawls. Or I, mean, I don't know if you could call it a brawl because it's just him knocking someone to the ground and then beating them in the face while they're down. And at one point, he fights with his own brother, but instead holds his hands down instead of, of instead of beating him in the face. So yeah, that, that really bothered me, the scene where, where Lee, the best friend, was convinced that his older brother had hit this tiny, tiny woman, a teenage girl, not even, not yet a woman, to quote St. Britney Spears. I mean, what the fuck? They had a little conversation that he had, his parents had sent him to see, Noah Flynn's parents had sent him to see several therapists because of the fighting, but he just shrugged it off as, that's just the way he was wired. And if he hears anything that makes him angry, apparently he is going to fly into a violent rage. And for whatever reason, all of the other equally large and ripped football players who are make up his peer group are frightened of him that he will hurt them. And somehow he is going to Harvard. I, I don't know, man. It was really strange writing. <laughs> Noah is going to Harvard to major in fights. He is um, he is going to be a fights major at Harvard. But it brings up like this movie's like regressive treatment of like gender roles. I think like th- this movie is so strange to me because it was made in 2018. It's marketed to Generation Z, and yet 
I think this might be the first rom-com we've done on this podcast that has no gay character that is like intensely doesn't even acknowledge the possibility of like same sex attraction. And then its view of gender is like Noah is this like virile, masculine, violent presence. And that's part of what makes him sexy. And it's like, what high school is this? in 2018 in Los Angeles that doesn't have like a large cohort of gays. It doesn't (laughs) exist. Well, that brought up a question that I had, which was, was there supposed to be a gay storyline in this movie? Because there's like these two guys that are background characters. And I literally don't know if I was just imagining it or what but like there one is in line for the kissing booth and then an, the other one like walks past him and there's like this weird 10 second like smirky smile that they have going on and then later on in the dance the one guy is just vibing by himself on the dance floor and the other one just like taps him on the shoulder and he turns around and they're like, Hey, and then they like start dancing together in this weird way. And I was like, is this the queer representation? (laughs) Is this it? (laughs) These two robot men. I mean, it was no, the proposal. That's for sure. We need Abby to come back on so she can give the the queer reading of the kissing booth that it does not deserve. I this movie just brought me right back to Wattpad. I mentioned it once in my synopsis, but I have to mention it again. It reminds me so much of so many just like teen girl Wattpads that they wrote in their room when they had really toxic concepts of what relationships were like, and so did I, and so I read them all. It reminds me specifically, and I hate to evoke this because we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet, but the movie After, which is also on Netflix, which is based off of a Wattpad Harry Styles fan fiction. And it's it, it reminds me of this because it's another one that was made recently, like within the past two years, and the gender roles and the problematic dynamic that it presents is like insanely old school. Like it is, it's like we haven't progressed past this. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Like my touchstone being like just a tiny hair older than Sadie was live journal for the, but yeah, I was like, this is this is a self-insert fanfic with high production values, is this movie. Because it definitely, oh, it was all the, the you're not like other girls because you don't fall all over me and God. you 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 get, call me on my bullshit and now let's make out intensely. And that is a surprising dynamic to see, for to me, committed to screen in 2018. Comparing it to the, well, to either of the two to all the boys movies that have come out now. In fact, and again, I continue to regret that we mildly criticized 
the second to all the boys I've loved before movie for portraying unrealistically positive uh, masculine behavior <laughs> on the parts of the teen boys in that movie because this was not that. Yeah, if this is our other option, give me to all the boys. Give me idealized masculinity over whatever Jacob E. Lordy <laughs> is doing in this movie any day of the week. I'm willing to suspend disbelief. And speaking of suspending disbelief, they fucked underneath the Hollywood sign? Question mark? <laughs> I was screaming at that point. I, first of all, there's no way that that's like possible. Number two, they've, they, they had sexual intercourse underneath the Hollywood sign in 2018. And that's wild to me. And that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> Not only did they have sexual intercourse, heavily implied, beneath the Hollywood sign, but apparently the act of that sexual intercourse somehow gave our protagonist, Elle, a professional blowout for her hair. She woke up very sleek and straight and glowing. I I have to point out because Sharon, our one of our favorite listeners, watched this movie along uh, along with us, at least in terms of timing. And as someone who lived in Southern California for quite some time, was enraged at this movie being presented as being set in Southern California because it was filmed, I believe, <laughs> in South Africa and what? passed off as LA. And so the Hollywood sign is egregious. Also, what they try to call LAX at the end of the movie is very clearly not LAX, which architecturally speaking is one of the most distinctive and recognizable airports in the world. So like, why would you try to create some why? carbon copy airport? Uh, why not at least shoot B-roll of LAX and insert it or like license some some video of LAX to <laughs> insert before it? Damn. This is a, a much greater betrayal than when Falling in Love tried to sell us an Australian as a New Zealander, honestly. I mean, on par. I don't know if that's a greater betrayal now that I said it out loud. It would be like if Falling in Love were actually filmed in like Siberia <laughs> or something. <laughs> like South Africa? Why did they go that far to film this? I assume tax breaks, which is wild that it works like that, that it's like less expensive to create like a fake Hollywood letter on a soundstage than it is to actually like buy filming rights to go film under the Hollywood sign. Oof. Okay. I am going to stand up and be a contrarian for a moment to give this movie a couple of props, though. Because I think I have mentioned several times on this podcast before, it is a huge pet peeve of mine when people have sex scenes with no condoms mentioned and whatnot. And that bothered me extremely about the beneath the Hollywood <laughs> sign scene that we saw. But I did appreciate that this movie was so casual and not tortured about the fact that these two teens started having sex when they were really into each other. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a big hand-wringing, like, virginity loss plot. And there was a scene in a montage where they're still trying to sneak around hiding the evidence of their affair, as Sadie has termed it. And she runs into his mom in a store while she is holding condoms that they are going to purchase. 
So I liked that little shout out to safe sex. Good work there, the kissing booth. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's the end of the positives. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed the that little montage that you talked about, the one that has the, the condom scene in it. It was probably the most enjoyable part of the movie. And I couldn't help but think that if the whole rest of the movie had been like that, showing Noah being like a decent guy, you know, it would have been so much better. Yeah. I enjoy I actually found myself enjoying that part. And then it was over and then the feeling of enjoyment was also over. <laughs> well, it's like they they kind of wrapped up the him being a decent guy was a secret along with their relationship, you know? It it That was a strange choice. And I feel like that part also worked very well because the two leads did have very strong chemistry together and apparently dated in real life as I was just Googling before we started doing the podcast. Now they are broken up and he is dating Zendaya, who he met, presumably filming Euphoria. So were they dating during the filming of the first movie this one i i'm having trouble finding it because now that there is apparently bum 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 to be a sequel to the kissing booth no all of the headlines that are coming up on the first several pages of google are about how awkward it was for them to film the sequel as exes instead of explaining like a cogent timeline of their relationship to me. But I sort of felt, I mean, I was just assuming that one of the reasons their chemistry was very appealing is that they met each other on the filming of this movie and were very attracted to each other. So that's why they look good making out, despite the fact that there are at least three feet of height and like a 200 pound weight difference between them. (laughs) I don't think it will matter that they were broken up while filming the sequel, because I think the way that Jacob E. Lordy looks at someone he loves versus someone he loathes is um, exactly the same. (laughs) It's just uh, a glowering, intense look. And it doesn't matter whether it's hatred or affection. He's a loomer, like (laughs) not like, Ariadne weaving on a loom like he uses his height to loom over people and stare at them. So um, thank you for bringing up the height difference also, Jen, because we talked about this before the podcast and it made us all like genuinely uncomfortable. <laughs> like it, I usually enjoy height differences and I think they're fun. Uh, but this one, there was something off about it. Something funky. I don't know. Jacob E. Lordy has the wingspan of like a 737. <laughs> it's <laughs> wild. I'm through accepting him as a high school age person. He is built like a house. <laughs> and Joey King is so small. I They look like, like father and daughter. You know, it was not. It was, I don't know, man. I don't know. Damn it, Sadie. That was a bad moment to take a drink right then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my Lord. And again, as as I texted you guys last night while I was irritatingly like live tweeting the movie in a text thread solely to my co-host of this podcast, like maybe this is hypocritical of me to say as a woman who is five foot eight inches tall, exactly equidistant between my parents' heights because my mother is very tiny and lies that she is 5'3 when she is actually 5'2. I don't know. But again, I am into the height difference in other fictional pairings, Sadie. I can find it very attractive. 
But I felt like there was not only just the extreme height difference between these two people as they are in real life, but the way this movie was filmed often emphasized that even more. And I don't know if it was to make a point about how large he loomed in her mind or he was the older brother or this, you know, kind of godlike popular football player figure at the school, but they would shoot it from these low angles that made Joey King look like she was three feet tall and he was eight feet tall. It was really something. And having watched, as Sadie and I were also talking about this, we are once again going to hold hands and jump into the fire. Hopefully it will not be as traumatic as watching the alternate ending to The Ugly Truth. But we need to finish watching Euphoria, which I have watched several episodes of the first season, but not seen the whole thing. I feel like the height difference between Jacob Elordi's character in Euphoria and his girlfriend on that show was very much played up to emphasize the menace of that character and how dangerous he was. And the vibes were very similar in this movie in a way that surely was not intentional yeah euphoria is like the sobering counterpunch to the kissing booth because it acknowledges what a like violent glowering person like the characters jacob e lordy plays would be like in some sort of like semi-real universe and not in a Wattpad universe where the violent angry boy is actually just deeply sexy and needs someone to help change him. He's just a beast. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Listen, those were exactly the types of of tropes that I ate up as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. And now I know better, but there's still a part of me that when I watch these types of movies that I'm just like, ah, yeah. There's like a of like a a warm familiarity to just like yeah this is a toxic relationship that I would have loved as a, as a tween. <laughs> I mean, damn, Sadie, no hate. I had to experience a whole youthful, ill-advised marriage of my own before I turned around <laughs> on embracing these tropes. So, <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> Sadie lived through a time loop where she got it out of her system at age 17. <laughs> it was when she was writing Groundhog Day. Or which movie did we talk about to Sadie, right? It was when I was writing Groundhog Day. <laughs> Sadie, we had Sadie writing. She wrote The Ugly Truth. That was it. I didn't want yes. to attribute that to Sadie. <laughs> I was the secret third person billed as the, as the screenwriter for The Ugly Truth, which Samantha thought was better than The Kissing Booth. We need to talk about that. Samantha, explain. Yeah, so look, The Ugly Truth is terrible. It's one of the worst movies I've ever been subjected to. But I think what I find really horrific about the kissing booth is like just how much of this movie is about like people ogling and examining Elle's 
body and like sexually harassing her and then her navigating that discomfort. But then she also like does this weird empowering, like quote unquote empowering, like uh, lingerie dance in the boys locker room. And like just the movie's messaging around Elle finding some kind of empowerment through her sexuality is like really muddled because in moments it will gesture toward like, this is for her. Like she chose a right time for her first time or whatever. And then there are moments that feel deeply regressive like the locker room dance and it just like felt just so claustrophobic to me (laughs) by the end of it like it was I words fail me (laughs) (laughs) I am gonna drag myself for filth here in this moment and say the reason I think that I liked the kissing booth a lot more than the ugly truth is just because I thought that the character's were more attractive and that's it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I have to jump on that train too, that I, w- it, you know, ugh, like the, the writing was terrible. It was the every soda fountain drink approach to creating a plot, but because the chemistry between the two leads was so palpable and because I think my expectations were so low because I had heard a bit of Samantha's reaction to it before I watched it, that I was able to just shut off my brain sometimes and enjoy it when they kissed each other. (laughs) I mean, maybe I would like this movie if it were just a PowerPoint presentation of (laughs) each of these actors' headshots displayed in succession or something. But as a film (laughs) with writing, as a film where... 50% of it is just Joey King crying and running out of rooms while, while Jacob Bellorty chases after her. It was just a horrific experience. I compared it in our group chat to um, going through the Saw movies where the characters in Saw (laughs) come out of their torture with a renewed appreciation for the beauty of life. That's how I feel after seeing this. Like, gosh, I really need to embrace and enjoy and drink deeply out of the things that I love because I survived this movie and I'll never look at the world the same way again. It also kind of reminds me, it's it's weird because in the moment of watching it, I felt deeply uncomfortable the entire time. And then I thought, okay, now it's going to get better. But the more that I think about it, the more it like terrifies me. And the only other thing in my life that's been like that is I, I had open heart surgery in 2008. <laughs> and in the moment, I kind of like <laughs> powered through it. And then like, you know, a month later, I was like, wait, I could have like died. And then like a year later, I'm like, whoa, what was that? Like the trauma cat caught up with me. And I feel like, (laughs) I feel like that's what's happening with the experience of watching the kissing booth. Like the further away I get, the more I'm feeling it. A year from now, you're just gonna like think about the kissing booth and burst into tears. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Shit. Uh, Honestly, a year from now, I might be there with you. This, it, uh, well, I was woken up by my dog in the middle of last night, but then I couldn't fall back to sleep afterwards because I was so concerned with myself for being not that concerned with this very troubling movie. And (sighs) it did, 
I poorly phrased it when I was texting uh, Samantha and Sadie last night that it was sort of like a more wish fulfillment version of my own high school experience, by which I do not mean those were my specific wishes and how I would have necessarily liked it to play out. But uh, I mean, I did live through a period, you know, of, of walking through the halls of high school as a freshman and having older boys like comment directly on my body to one another where I could hear it and such like that. And to this day now in as an adult, I do not have very good situational awareness because I move about the world in my own bubble where I do not allow myself to feel the eyes of anyone who might be looking at me. So I did feel a bit envious of these characters apparently having like no emotions or inner lives to feel troubled by any of these developments. And they all just get to drive sick vehicles and feel awesome about everything. Yeah, were there arcs? No. No, no, no. There was not. <laughs> there was none. And I think the place that it needed it most was Noah. And we didn't see it at all. Yeah. <laughs> Like, even Al's character arc is just like, I don't know, she's hot and popular and then has a boyfriend for two months. Like, what kind of story is that? That's like, yeah, that's not an interesting narrative to tell about someone in high school. That's what happens to every hot, popular person is they sleep with someone who's not good for them, but learn a little something from it, I guess. Yes. Samantha, like, you never even know what any of the characters want to do with their lives. You never know what Noah's going to Harvard for. You don't know what Joey King's character wants to do after she graduates. You don't even know what Lee wants to do after he graduates. Like, genuinely, her only ambition in this movie is to be with Noah. And I hate it. And and that's what's so, like, Wattpad about the whole thing. Yeah. Is the characters all just have, like, one characteristic. Like, it, you know, when you write, like, bad, like, erotica or whatever, you're not trying to give these characters backstories, thoughts, or dreams. You're like, okay, she's quirky but she's hot he's violent but he's protective and he's the best friend or something and then you just run with that for 200 pages and i think i've read that book (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've written one of those too sadie oh maybe i'll tell you my uh ao3 name later (laughs) (laughs) oh i will not be telling you Lee got two characteristics, which is that he wanted a girlfriend and he wanted his platonic best female friend to not date his brother. Joey King got that she was obsessed with Noah. Jake and Belordi, Noah got that he liked to fuck and look cool riding a motorcycle and beat people up. Molly Ringwald strangely had a... <laughs> strangely had a Comfort. I, what is what is the, this is what has been really troubling me what I thought about a lot last night when I woke up from sleep was what was Molly Ringwald acting as the mother of Noah and Lee Flynn what was her motivation in going to, I mean I get that like okay her best friend has died her best friend's daughter is heartbroken because Molly Ringwald's younger son doesn't want the daughter 
to be boning down on her older son. And she goes and gives her some comforting words about how it's all okay and she should bone down on the older son. Uh, This just doesn't seem like good, like, family dynamics management to me. Like, what are your priorities here, Molly Ringwald? Yeah, they would have need to have like pared down a lot of the rest of the movie to make the Molly Ringwald's dynamic with Elle work. You know, like this movie wants to have the mean girls in it. It wants to be like a sexual coming of age movie. It also wants to like have traumatic teen backstory. It's the, it's the soda fountain problem. And it's like, maybe that scene with Molly Ringwald would have worked if we had cut out some of the rest of the unnecessary side plots of the movie and like given us more scenes of Joey King and Molly Ringwald together. But as it stands, by the time Molly Ringwald <laughs> appeared to give uh, Joey King her blessing to go fuck Jacob E. Lordy, <laughs> it was like, wait, you t- you two talk like this? Like, you two have a relationship? Like, right? I thought you were just like, kind of what? cursorily aware of each other. <laughs> so to my memory, correct me if you guys can think of another, not counting the dad or the little brother of Elle who appeared very minorly in the movie. I believe of the high schoolers, we saw one single unpopular character, one boy who was girding his courage to go kiss someone at a paid kissing booth for charity where the other kisser was blindfolded and no tongue was supposed to be allowed. And that was the only time we actually saw the mean girls act mean is that they didn't want to kiss him. So they they shoved uh, uh, Joey King out front. And then instead, Noah swoops in to save her somehow from having to kiss like a perfectly fine looking, but sort of awkward kid in a kissing booth that she had set up. I, it, that scene was weird because I think that the, the unpopular kid asked Noah to cut in. He was like, hey, cutsies? And Noah was like, sure. Yeah. And then he got, I was like, what? what that was strange. What is and going then, on? <laughs> also, I think that that unpopular kid was in the kissing booth montage from like five minutes before that scene. And it shows him like tonguing another girl that was working the kissing booth or was that a different guy that just looked exactly the same i don't know maybe he just didn't want to kiss joey king and he was like get in there man cutsies but did he even know that it was listen like i just i I don't know that made no sense we just need to talk about the kissing booth as a whole like (laughs) one this would not happen two it's presented as this like fantastical circumstance that suddenly thrust Elle and Noah together, even though Elle engineered the entire kissing booth. Like the last line in in this movie was, uh, and to think it all happened because of a kissing booth as though they like met in an elevator or some other rom-com meet cute, like faded moment. (laughs) And it's like, yes, you, it happened because of a kissing booth that you proposed pitch to your school and like- Went to great effort. Yeah, to try to even recruit Noah. Again, 
hearkening back to the Watt pattery of it all, that whole engineering everything, but then acting like it's just a random circumstance of fate and Joey King is the chosen one. Are we sure they didn't lift this plot from, uh, you know, from somebody's Wattpad account? I f- surely they did. Oh, I think it was legit based on a Wattpad. No, are you serious? <laughs> I know that After was based off of a Wattpad by Anna Todd, not to bring up After once more, but it truly is so applicable to this movie. I'm Googling it now. It was based on a novel. Um, uh, It was based on a YA novel. It is a Wattpad success story. Oh my God, are you serious? The YA novel was was adapted. Yes. Hold on. Sadie, your instincts are so on point, as always. You sniffed the Wattpattery right out of the air. Oh. And the YA novel was hugely popular, and the popularity of the YA novel means directly translated into the number of people who watched and rewatched this movie. And it is apparently now one of the most viewed films in the entire world. What? <laughs> <laughs> Like what? Truly? A Netflix like um like, I'm a Netflix executive called it quote one of the most watched movies in the country and maybe the world and that it had a 30% higher than average rewatch rate. Oh my god. Holy shit. Okay. So, so- the, the kissing booth <laughs> this is like our our new twilight, our new 50 shades of gray is the kissing booth. So According to an article on TechCrunch, the original story was started on Wattpad back in 2011 and won one of the site's Wattie Awards the same year. And that same year for most popular teen fiction, the story was read a whopping 19 million times while on Wattpad. What? Before the then 17-year-old author Beth Reekles scored a three book deal with Random House UK in 2013, becoming the youngest Wattpad writer to earn a book deal at that time. Uh, I am bamboozled, y'all. I am knock me over with a feather right now. I'm processing. Samantha's processing so hard that she is silent. (laughs) I hate to say it, but I am reading it right now on Wattpad. Sadie, you've got to tell us how it compares. <laughs> I see this working as a Wattpad. I even see it working as a YA novel. We all have baser instincts that we need to satisfy. We all have fantasies that don't necessarily align with what's good for us or what's socially appropriate or that kind of thing. But I, I don't think it made the translation to film very well. Yeah. I think what bothers me the most about the kissing booth and of all of these like Wattpad turned YA books turned crazy blockbuster movies that get a lot of money even though they're super bad is that Wattpad stories in general, they were bad, but there are some that were genuinely really good, like that were really original and were just amazing. And I don't know if those people got book deals, but I bet they didn't. And they surely didn't get movie deals after that. And so it just kind of sucks to see that Wattpad is 
you know, and all these like old websites that a lot of like creative young teens kind of turn to when they couldn't be as creative in their high school or whatever the situation was. Now, like the concept of like Wattpad is just like synonymous for these really shitty, these really shitty and toxic stories it's it's sad to think that it's kind of yet another twilight like a hugely popular like teen focused romance that like perpetuates some pretty toxic (laughs) ideas about relationships and and dating it really astounds me but at the same time depressingly does not shock me at all that the controlling man archetype is still very attractive to apparently apparently 19 million something young women or enough of them that read it enough times to get it up to those numbers that was very much the the edward cullen (laughs) archetype that i watch you while you're sleeping and and in this movie it was more the I will beat up any man who looks at you who is not me and gross. What's wild to me is like, gosh, we just need to replace all like teen focused relationship content with like, like Jane Austen miniseries, (laughs) honestly. And I know that makes me sound like 75, but like Jane Austen wrote like complex male love interests who were like a little too dark or a little too glowering or a little too possessive and yet we're like still human and still trying to be good partners like if Jane Austen cracked this however long ago why are we backpedaling and into like you know um Twilight and the kissing booth. And I don't know what the guy's name in Twilight is. Um, Edward, (laughs) or is that the werewolf? It's Edward. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, that is the greatest idea. I think like, if you think about Clueless, which is based off of Jane Austen's Emma, Clueless is one of the most influential teen movies ever made because it uses that basis of like all these characters have these complex, rich inner lives and the writing is great. The writing is foundational. I love Clueless so much. It's so good. And we need more. I think that if we did like a modern version of Pride and Prejudice set in high school, that would be so fun. We have the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, which is kind of like that, but we could we could do so much with it. God, you got me all excited, Samantha. (laughs) I've just been really disappointed in the kind of characters that are showing up in teen content. Mm -hmm. Like I just, um, you know, out of quarantine boredom, streamed the first few episodes of Never Have I Ever which I think has some interesting performances and and some good writing. It's got some problematic bits to it as well. And, and yet, you know, like the characters are like, Oh, here's the guy and he's really hot and he's a swimmer. And it's like, (laughs) 
come on. <laughs> like, we yeah. can do better. Like, we can give more depth to these people. People are full of contradictions, teenagers especially. Like, that's what makes high school such brutal writing ground. And why would you ever make <laughs> yeah. someone one-dimensional in a teen movie? I watched Never Have I Ever. And what got me about Never Have I Ever was... All of the characters were, you know, I think that Never Have I Ever was good at nailing this, like, you know, these teen girls that are awkward and they have their own interests, but they also are chasing after people that they are interested in. And it's it was, it was nice and it was refreshing, but the love interest, Paxton Hall Yoshida, first of all, is played by a 28-year-old man, um, which is terrible. <laughs> and second of all... What really bothered me about that was that his one, like, ooh, he has a rich inner life is that he has a younger sister with Down syndrome. And that's supposed to be, like, his Mm. characteristic. I'm like, no, he just has a sister who has Down syndrome. That A whole ass another human being as a prop to give him some personality yeah that's not a great look i mean not to go in and talk about never have i ever um which is otherwise a a really a really good series i enjoyed it but we're supposed to be talking about the kissing booth but i think that kissing booth is just like indicative of all of these other things and it's so easy to get torn away from it because it's all interwoven it really does make you appreciate clueless which you brought up and like Gosh, Mean Girls may be the most recent teen movie, I think, that like had that depth of writing to it. I'm trying to think of anything else that's come out since then that hasn't made me like cringe or wince a little bit. Do you do you have a, a favorite? I am trying to think. Book Smart is is a good one for me. Um, and eighth grade, but they both have this like dissidence with me because I I wasn't in high school last year and I wasn't in eighth grade last year. But yeah, I Clueless is really my favorite teen movie, I think. Booksmart for me falls prey to the too much people walking into rooms in slow motion to pop music problem mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I, I do like a lot of Booksmart, but it's like, Slow motion was, I think, the worst thing to happen to teen to teen media <laughs> in the 21st century. I think that's why Clueless was so good, was because they didn't have access to really high quality slow motion cameras back then. Clueless is one of the most original movies ever made, which is what I love about it so much. Like, there's so much slang that originated in Clueless that has shaped generations after it. And then if you think about, if you watch watch Clueless and then immediately after watch The Kissing Booth and just cry. Yeah. I mean, my forever favorite, and I saw it at the perfect age, it came out at the exact right time for me, is always going to be 10 Things I Hate About mm-hmm. You. And if Katerina Stratford walked into this school of people that is presented in The Kissing Booth and it would be a very different movie, I feel. <laughs> but um, I, I will go give a... I was trying to think the whole time I was listening to you guys about something because I'm not super up on teen properties either myself, but I did... I read the books that went with the the two All the Boys I've Loved Before movies. And I feel like in the books, not necessarily with the male characters, but with the protagonist, 
she does actually have a personality and thoughts and an inner life and feelings in the book and makes them and that I felt very disappointed as we discussed when we did our podcast on that movie. I felt got flattened quite a bit in the second movie as opposed to the first. Yeah. I mean, to all the boys, it's, um, it's appropriate that you bring it up because one of the things I was thinking about was how to all the boys in the kissing booth, both sort of have a problem of like class or like socioeconomic status. Isn't really a thing in, in this movie, they don't address it by just making all of the characters extravagantly wealthy. Noah and Lee live in, some huge Hollywood Hills mansion with no explanation for what their parents do. And it made me long for pretty and pink and the wrong side of the railroad track storyline because it presumably these characters are going to a public high school. That's what's depicted in the film. Although I think it would work better um, as a private school (laughs) given the kind of character types that we're seeing, but in public high school, like class does come into play. Like enormously so much. That is such a, yeah, (laughs) such a, was, was it a pri- or was it a public high school? Because they all had to wear uniforms, and that library seemed like super fancy. They never really talk yeah. about it. They never address it once, which is so frustrating to me. Like they live in a, a house that I'm sure rivals Beyonce's mansion, and you never even <laughs> talk about it. It's never mentioned. There's there was no reason to make the Flynn family that rich. There was no reason. Yeah. Like, again, coming back to my fave, 10 Things I Hate About You, it was made very plain that the the main character, Kat, in that movie and her younger sister, Bianca, were not, I, I don't, the, the characters in this movie were on a whole nother level of wealth, okay? That house was ridiculous. What was that kid driving like a, a custom Mustang GT350 for at age 16. I do not understand. But in 10 Things I Hate About You, it was woven into the plot, like what their father did as a career and why that affected their level of wealth and why that made them attractive to the richer, you know, more popular at the school boys and why, yeah, like they even were calling out like, cats burgeoning white feminism you know in that movie like how far have we fallen guys where have we ever like (laughs) are we gonna bother making a case for lee okay well it's difficult an hour into talking about this movie you go first sadie so the elephant in the room is that lee is never really presented as a romantic possibility but just for the sake of this podcast and also because that's what the promo kind of made it seem like it was going to be. I'm going to assume that Lee is a romantic option. He's better in every way. So number one, I think that he is cute. I think that he's a different cute than Jacob Elordi, but I, I, I mean, I vibe with either one of them. And number three, he genuinely has Elle's best interest at heart. And he I mean, he rightfully got really, really nervous when he saw that she had that cut on her face. He didn't know that his brother, you know, what his brother had done. 
And he, at the end, he kind of says, like, he's like, I genuinely think you're making a mistake being with my brother. And that's kind of where his sentiment is left in the movie, is that he continues to think that she is making the wrong decision being with his brother. And I I think that, you know, to have such a good judge of character that you genuinely don't like your own brother because he's a huge asshole, <laughs> you know, I, I, I appreciated that about Lee. I agree. I've got to say, Lee was a real cutie. I do think that they were very well cast as in that those two, uh, I believe them as brothers, Jacob Elordi and whoever played Lee. And Lee was preferable in every way, as Sadie said. And it was incredibly disturbing that, I mean, he has lived with his own brother his whole life and knows him well enough and really thinks that he would hit this like two foot, four inch woman in the face. Like, that's really disturbing. But yeah, the the elephant in the room, as, as you just pointed out, Sadie, was that he, okay, Cut back for a second. I think that that was a bit of the reason that I also enjoyed watching the movie more than I thought that I would, because I assumed going in that it was going to be a brother versus brother setup. And I hate like sort of incesty overtones in romance things. I really yeah. dislike sibling versus sibling setups, you know, to compete for a love interest. So I think that perhaps just the relief I felt at realizing that that was not how the movie was going to play out positively colored my viewing more than it would have otherwise. But yeah, Lee, he he loved being her best friend, but he did not want to be with our gal. Even though he was very, very, as Sadie pointed out, coded to, uh, it was it was very much set up that way in the beginning. Honestly, there was just a lot. It felt like they were making up plot points on the spot as they filmed it. And they were like, well, now, no, Lee, they're just friends and Lee doesn't want to be with her anymore. I mean, it makes sense for something that was originally written in serialized form that like certain things don't like connect and that it's just kind of a long assembly of scenes that don't necessarily like always cohere so like i did have like consistency problems like following lee's character throughout but he's not hyper violent he doesn't ride a motorcycle and therefore his life expectancy is much longer than <laughs> noah's also because he won't get into as many fights and suffer as many blunt force traumas to his head and um he just seems genuinely pretty good-hearted and he clearly has an excellent memory as evidenced by the fact that they have however many 75 rules of their friendship that they just call out based on number regularly to one another. <laughs> Can we talk about rule number seven? Because <laughs> it, which was you have to forgive each other if you bring the other person ice cream, <laughs> which I think- That's a bullshit. It opens up a tantalizing loophole in which you could like murder each other's loved ones and then, <laughs> and then like- bring a scoop of rocky road and and then they have to forgive you yeah here's a choco taco i killed your family <laughs> oh and then it was framed as a sort of betrayal when what she l remembers this rule at the end of the movie after she has canonically 
lived through two slightly awkward weeks where her best friend is very angry at her. And then, only then, does she remember the rule, which Lee, with his his grasp on the rules, probably would have been there much quicker. But she brings him some ice cream, and then he looks at her like it's the bullshit it is, and walks off and throws it in a trash can. And it's sort of, I mean, I don't know if y'all got the same sense, but the way it was all framed and stuff, like that his rejection of the ice cream was the betrayal rather than her long-term deceiving him about fucking his violent and somehow popular older brother. Yeah, they care way too much about these rules. And I want to see like how the rules were developed. I want to see their like conference call at age seven, where they came up (laughs) with like 47 rules to apply to all sorts of scenarios that would only occur when they were like 16 and 17. I don't know if this will come up in the final version as Samantha edits us to sound very erudite, like we do not have to take pauses between thoughts. But there was just a long silence as we all sat with the weight of our feelings about the kissing booth and said nothing. <laughs> I was I was literally staring up at the sky thinking about it. <laughs> That's an appropriate response. You know what I was thinking about was how we how we chose the kissing booth, which is we were either going to do always be my maybe or the kissing booth. And Sadie plugged them both into a randomizer (laughs) that spun and then consigned us to the fate of watching and discussing the kissing booth. And that is a genuine fateful circumstance. We can sit here and say, and to think this all happened because of a randomizer. And, and that line would work, unlike <laughs> and to think this all happened because of a kissing booth. Oh, damn. So what are our ratings? We'll let Samantha go last this time because I feel like she will have the best and most dramatic one. Oh, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. I will start. <clears throat> I give the kissing booth two very sticky outy Joey King lips out of... <laughs> <laughs> Ten, not even five. I have but... to mute myself. I have to mute. <laughs> but um, you know, I did like watching the hot actor youths in love make out with each other while their feelings for one another were fresh, even though the writing was very problematic. And also much of the scenery and the cast were very beautiful to look upon. I I <laughs> I give it one and a half dance dance revolution rounds out of five <laughs> because the characters the, the actors are hot and there's like a certain nostalgia of watching a movie like this that reminds me of like Degrassi and others like shows with really problematic storylines. I dare not compare it to skins, but similar energy. Yeah. And I will be watching the sequel. Unfortunately. (laughs) Sidebar Sadie, we need to have a Degrassi, the next generation conversation someday. Oh, and now to Samantha's rating. (laughs) Uh, I give this movie 
zero conveniently placed greenhouses in the middle of a thunderstorm out of 100 (laughs) such greenhouses. This movie was one of the great (laughs) trials and tribulations of my life. And I just feel lucky that I'm still here talking to you. Wait a moment. I'm looking something up. I have to scroll back through all of my text. But I said that I would remind Samantha to say on record, (laughs) that's where you realize life was a precious gift. That's where Samantha thought that she might murder herself halfway through if she had to summarize this film. (laughs) <laughs> that was very um it was very dramatic over our Instagram group chat. <laughs> I've got a little more perspective now. Samantha, quote, wanted, at least at one point shortly after watching this, to enter a kissing booth where the kisser is a sledgehammer. Samantha wanted to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind herself, except the memory she wants to erase is watching the kissing booth last night. (laughs) It was especially bad because we, we recorded the Groundhog Day episode, and on days when we record and I edit the podcast i'm like so happy about podcasting because i'm like oh my god i love talking to you i love listening to us talking to each other again right afterward (laughs) and i was just feeling so like bopsy about the whole thing that i was like you know what i'm gonna watch next week's movie right now as like a little treat to myself for finishing the (laughs) editing Oh no. <laughs> and listener, it was it was not a treat. <laughs> so, are we going to hit up the sequel in July? <laughs> I will definitely be and I will hate every second. What was that tweet? That tweet you sent, Sadie? It said something like, at least the internet during all of this will be able to come together and hate the kissing booth too for one day. Yeah. <laughs> Were either of you like kind of online when this first one came out? Was this a collective like internet moment? Yes. I I feel like I, I had like some friends who were just like, you know, unwitting. They didn't know. They didn't, they couldn't have known. And they watched it and afterward they were like, my eyes are burned out of my head. And then when um To All the Boys I've Loved Before came out, a really po- like common meme or whatever was that people would watch to all the boys and then Netflix would immediately recommend them the kissing booth and people would be like absolutely fucking not (laughs) wow well the kissing we've said it all folks (laughs) (laughs) cut it (laughs) I just had cold bread I'm about to kiss the declaration of independence the gray. This moment of my life, nachos! Was it, Noah? Yeah.